talked about the different um, types of blood uh, draw. We talked about some of the things that would affect. We talked about the collection tubes, mostly venous blood, right? So we said that venous blood is mostly times that's the blood that we use in lab medicine. Um, did we talk about the timing of the draw? That's where we start, right? So we talked about the timing of the draw with regards to, um, it could be with regards to uh, chronological timing, right? Because some, some, um, some labs have to be drawn like first thing in the morning. So and some labs kind of have, have to be drawn, like we said, sequentially. Some lab, like every six hours, some labs, um, when, when else, some labs the timing doesn't matter. So you know, those are the things that we, um, that, that we need to be aware of as clinicians because, and actually a lot of times in lab medicine people should know this in terms of like if you're in a hospital, but it's just for you to know to make sure that sometimes when you're, when you're putting in notes in, um, whether it's writing it or putting it in the EHR or you're ordering a study, you will say draw, draw whatever at so so at whatever time. So sometimes you can put the timing in, sometimes you can't, but this this is something that hopefully would be carried out um, by the uh, the person, you know, the lab that's drawing it. And I'm thinking more of the hospital environment. Okay. So what about reporting the results, right? Um, why is this important? It's important to you guys because patient care will be delayed. Um, if it is that you're the person who is getting the report for your attending as a clinician, remember you don't want to wait until um, the end of the day if a report comes through. Um, remember that uh, it can make somebody, it can make it useless, it can be like threatening. Um, when you are going to, um, when, when, blood, when reports are given, it should be by a clinician. Okay, it shouldn't be the girl at the front desk who's checking patients in. And I, I'm sure you guys realize this just from your own experiences that if, you know, when they have been automated, they will say, are you calling for prescriptions or labs or whatever, and they will put you through, like to the nurse in the back, okay, or the medical assistant. Um, what is readback? Readback is really important because if you are calling, if you have, you yourself have your patients sitting there in the room and you have not gotten the results back from lab call, okay, or if it is in the hospital and you have to call the hospital lab, or if it's the clinic and you have to call someone in the clinic, make sure you do what they call the readback. So when they tell you the results, especially if it's over the phone, you want to make sure that you read it back to the person that, to make sure you have the correct, um, the correct results. And actually read back or, or in the interview part process with your patient, it's always good practice when you educate your patient on something that you ask your patient, can you repeat to me what I just told you? Because a lot of patients, you know, like we, we all know that sometimes there's so much going on in that in that room, that examining room, that a lot of times, you know, they, they miss, right? They miss the the important information. So anything about you know, um, read back, even with even with your attendings, even with the nurses, even with the people at the front desk, very important because there's so much background noise. Um, the other key thing is, and we, I taught you guys this in radiology, just make sure that when you're reading a lab result, 
The first thing you do is you identify that it is your patient. The other thing about um, reports is that sometimes, just like with radiology, sometimes what you're expecting, because this is the point, like anything in diagnostic medicine, this is helping you, you have your top three differentials, and this is helping you to decide which one is, you know, the number one differential. If it is, the lab results just don't match, right, with the patient's history, right, signs and symptoms, physical exam, whatever you're thinking of, it's okay to have the, the, have the blood drawn again. It is better to do that than to treat your patient on uh, erroneous lab results. Because just because it comes from a big company like LabCorp, it's not done in the mom and pop lab. It doesn't mean that um, errors cannot occur. Okay? We talked about there are, lot, there are lots of errors that can happen. It can happen with all. And I think that's what we're going to talk about next when we talk about the different phases. All right, so I won't jump again. Um, when it comes to clinical labs, right, has hospitals, non-hospitals, you divide it into hospitals and non-hospitals. I mean, this is just, you know, reading off it. Uh, physicians' offices have their labs, and you have these independent labs, such as lab one class. And then you have the, the reference labs, and these are the labs for your government agencies. So your CDC, right, and then you have the epidemiology labs. So when we think of labs, we think of it as just being um, patient, right? The doctor to patient, but no, you have, it entails more because that's where, um, and we've seen this, right, with COVID. So that's where all of the, the different um, data comes out of as well. So that's with regards to the types of labs. Um, biostatical, statistical, sorry, concepts. I hear that word statistical. Who likes statistics? You guys have to do statistics, right? Yeah. Never likes statistics. Oh, she does. She's a, a nerd. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you know, she's a, can I tell you you're a chemistry major? She was a chem, she is a chemistry major. So when you guys do pharmacology, bring her breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Okay, so sensitivity. So when we say that a test is sensitive, what does sensitivity mean? It means that they, it, it is able to detect the people who do have the disease, right? That's what sensitivity means. So always associate a sensitive test with a screening test. So those are the ones that are usually screening tests. You're not going to you're not going to order a test that's specific for a for screening just to know if the patient has the test or not. Example of a screening test. Well, here they have um, the cervical, the pap smear, but a lab test. Example of a lab test is TSH. TSH is a screening test to determine does this patient have any thyroid issues, right? But if if the TSH levels, right? are abnormal, then you, you will want to order the specific T3 and T4, especially T4, because T4 is the active form. You, there's more T3 than T4, but T4 is more active. So the key with that is specific. So now you're dealing with specificity, okay? So specificity is the ability to detect the people who do not have the disease. So I have a group of people, let's look at it, let's think about it that way. I have a group of people and I want to know, I want to know who has the disease, you'll do a screening test, right? 
And then if the screening test comes back positive, then you want to know who really out of that group does not have the disease. And that's when you will order more specific tests. So always think of sensitive, sensitive tests as screening tests, specific tests, um, uh, screening tests, and those other specific tests are specific tests. What is wrong with me? Yes. Yeah, high specificity. So, for example, anti-CCP, that's supposed to be diagnosis of uh, rheumatoid arthritis. But when you have a patient who comes to the, when a rheumatologist sees a patient for the first time, and the patient presents clinically with rheumatoid arthritis, the first test he's going to order is not an anti, right? He's not going to order, he's not going to order the anti-CCP. Um, he's going to order an ANA, anti-nuclear antibodies. And then when that's positive, and then he's going to say, okay, which of the autoimmune diseases am I dealing with? I know that, you know, clinically this patient is presenting with, let's say, SLE, right, or RA, and then there's specific, right, the specific anti-CCP um, or, or all those other specific tests that will now tell him, tell him, okay, this patient does have it or this patient does not have the specific um, autoimmune disease. So that's a good example. Anti-CCP is um, more specific for rheumatoid arthritis. Any questions on that? Okay. So ranges. So when we talk about a reference range, there's a reference range, a desirable range, and a therapeutic range. So reference range, the thing with reference ranges is basically statistics. So what, how do they come up? Because we take it for granted, right? We say um, you, have to, you have to see, you know, when you look at a lab report, is it high, low, they flag it, and they're flagging it on based on reference ranges. Well, the way they develop um reference ranges is that they, they draw blood on patients who do not, normal patients, patients who do not have any type of comorbidity. So they're their control. And that's how they determine um, what your reference range is. The other important thing to know about reference ranges is that um, every lab has a little bit of a variation in that reference range. So when, so when we, um, Teach uh, when we teach you guys, when we say, okay, this this is this is the range. You know, when you go out into practice, lab course range may vary just a little bit from the range of uh, let's say quest diagnosis diagnostics, or even what the textbook will tell you. That's because every lab has an instrument, right? And every instrument has quality control, and, and every instrument operates at a different um, different mechanics, different mechanics. So. They're not going to vary that much, but the key is that you don't expect to see this range uh, when you're looking at it if you, if you look from a lab port to a quest. That's where the variations will come into place. Um, remember, they're generally expressed in, um, with units and um, always, right? And that's what I told you guys before. Any unusual result, you should always correlate it to your patient's history and uh, the context of the medical history and other clinical findings, you never treat lab results. You don't. It's just like my the cardiologist I used that I um, who taught me always used to say, never treat the EKG, you treat the patient. Right? So just remember that never treat a patient based on their uh, lab value. They're not a lab value. 
Okay, so the other thing that you need to take into consideration when you're dealing with reference values are all of these things listed there, the age, the sex, the weight, the diet, right? We know that's good, the time of day, we said that before. Activity status. If you, if you have a patient and you're ordering uh, creatine kinase, you want to make sure the patient didn't exercise, go for a job before they came, right? Because that's that muscle, that's one of the that's one of the analytes that is present in uh, skeletal muscle. So if they went on a jog and then they went to the lab and they drew blood, then they, their levels will probably be higher than, than normal. So that's when they talk about activity stages. We talked about posture, right? Sitting, lying down, those can change. And then season, Why, what tests would be affected by season? What lab tests? Yeah, like IgE for allergies. And um, certain, certain uh, levels, uh, vitamin D. Because remember, summertime, we're out in the sun, right? When you live in, so vitamin D can also be affected by seasons. Okay. So I just kind of gave you guys some of the some of the analytes: um, adenine phosphatase, creatinine kinase, urine, creatinine. Just for you guys to see how the how, what the variation is like between um, them. Sometimes it's a really big variation. Sometimes it's not that much of a difference. So that's just for you guys to um, for you to understand how it can change and visually see that it can change. Okay. So that's the reference range. Normal patients, that those are the ones that, that, that are used to draw blood and test all these analytes and come up with these reference ranges. What about the desirable range? Okay, so when you talk about desirable range, it's usually a collaboration of pairs, not P-A-R-S to E. P-E-E-R-S. So these are the ones like the uh, American Heart Association or the American Diabetic Association. Basically what it is, it's based on clinical research and clinical expertise. So those are the, those are the ones that determine, right, that, for example, what is, what is the normal glucose level? We take it for granted, right, less than 100, but how do we know? Less than 100 in a patient who is not that, uh, who is normal. What about, what do we consider pre-diabetic? What range should we consider pre-diabetic? Well, that's, that's, that's the desirable ranges that these groups of experts, right, came up with where they use the, the lab outcome and the clinical outcome, right, the lab results with the clinical outcome, and they came up with these ranges. So those are called desirable ranges. So it's, it's a lot of stuff that we take for granted that, you know, the whole idea of this introduction is that any time, you know, when you do, when you do cardiology and they talk about, you know, the, the triglycerides and so forth, you, you could say, oh, those are desirable ranges, and that's how they came about. And then we talked a little bit about the therapeutic range with regards to a window, right? Because we had talked about that when we talked about the fact that sometimes too much of a drug can be toxic, too little is going to not, give, not um, result in the appropriate response that you want. So the thing is, um, when values below, right? Okay, so that's basically it. And if you notice that some, and you will also notice that with some medications, this um, therapeutic range can be very narrow. Some are narrow, some are a little bit wider. So that's another thing to take into consideration. You guys will, will deal more with these, especially in pharmacology. 
So for example, Theophylline is one of those, right? That the range is eight to eight to eighteen. A lot of the a lot of the um, like seizure meds, you have to you have to keep that that uh, range within a very narrow. So there's certain of those meds that need to. Okay, and then you have those that don't even have a range. It's either you want it to you want it to be zero, right? So for example, drug, drug testing. You're running a drug test, you don't want zero is where you start off, right? And anything above zero is considered positive. Yes? Does that make sense? So they don't have a range. And then troponin. Troponin now does have a value. It's not a range, it's a specific value. So 0.4 ml, um, nanograms per ml, anything above that you would consider that the patient's troponins are high. Remember the thing, remember the thing is this, that what, when, we, when we talk about analytes, whether it's in the blood, when we're testing blood or we're testing urine or we're testing CSF fluid or you're testing amniotic fluid, bless you. The, thing, the key to remember is the reason, what, the reason why this helps us so much is that these, in the blood it will be excess of what is required, what is normally there, and that's why we're able to measure it. Um, <clears throat> you'll see when you do, when you do some, some pathologies where when you do, you have to draw, um, for example, let me see if I remember off the top of my head. Sometimes with creatinine, you're going to have to draw blood creatinine and you have to order blood creatinine and urine creatinine. So there are times where you need to do both of the same analyte for, certain, uh, for the diagnosis of certain pathologies. Any questions so far? Other than, get this out of here, lady. Okay, so testing process. What do we know about the testing process? Is this cute little diagram. Pre-analytical, analytical, and post-analytical phase. Most of the errors that occur in lab results occur in the pre-analytical phase. And who is, look at, the, look at what makes up the pre-analytical phase. Test selection. Who, who selects the test? Providers do, you guys do. So what we're saying is just like with diagnostic medicine, when I said diagnostic imaging, when I said, you know, you, you don't want to order the ultrasound, you don't want to order the CT scan for a, a pediatric patient if you can order the ultrasound, you guys are responsible for test selection. It's the same thing here. And that's what, that's one of the things, one of the errors is in test selection. The other is in patient preparation, which makes sense. You're sending a patient for glucose, glucose tolerance test, uh, 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 blood, uh, fasting blood glucose, and the patient isn't fasting, or they forgot, the office forgot to tell the patient to fast. That's another error. Diatonic position, so that's really important there. So, aside from before the blood is drawn, then you have the problem of when. That's another place of the pre-analytical is sample collection. The blood is supposed to be put on ice. It wasn't put on ice, right? Um, the blood is actually that's trans yeah collection uh, collection verification. Uh, patient Mrs. Smith came in. They drew the blood on Mr. Smith and Mr. Jean and six patients, and they didn't label the tubes as soon as you drew the blood, and you have twenty about uh, twenty uh, test tubes with blood and nobody knows what belongs to who, right? 
really important. You can see a problem there, right? Um, so just that uh, the correct tubes, the conditions we talked about, the order of the draw, um, patient identification, which is that sample identification, and then transportation. And then the analytical phase has to do with the, uh, you, you have no control. We have no control over the analytical phase. If the person coming into the lab in the morning was supposed to run the quality assurance on the machinery and they didn't, that's going to skew results for every single uh, sample that's done. So that's, that's something we have no control of. And then you have the reporting, the interpretation, the patient assessment, the clinical question, post, the post-analytical phase. We're a part of that post-analytical phase. Why? Because we are the ones that are taking the results that we have, we're using it in conjunction with the patient's clinical history, physical exam, and then we are interpreting it. Okay, so we are also a part of that. And then you have the patient, what well, part of the patient assessment, which was basically um, history and physical. Anything, any questions on this? No, I told you it was going to be dry and quick and fast. You guys can all read anything, anything we talked about that you guys never knew? Anything? A lot of it. Anything you never knew? I never knew reference range, where reference ranges came from. When I was taught uh, in, uh, lab medicine, and then things like these Arago ranges, I didn't know that it was these organizations and stuff. Yes? Things that you guys 
can be familiar with. So we're going to talk about clinical chemistry and the general methods, clinical immunology, microhematology, and transfusion medicine. Okay, so these are the components of your clinical lab. Every lab has different sections. Every section deals with different things. When you hear molecular techniques, you think of genetic testing. Chemistry and biochemistry, you're running a urinalysis, that's where it's done, in that section of the lab. Coagulation, right? You have a, a patient that needs to, you have to run the PTT, right? The PT and the PTT, the clotting factors. That's where it's run. Hematology, a patient comes in and is, um, you highly suspect anemia, you need to run, you need to run the CBC, right? And you want to do white blood cells with differentials, that's where hematology goes into play. Micro, patient comes in um, with a sore throat, cannot swallow, high fever, right? You do, you do your oral exam, right? You do e, H-E-E-N-T, and then you see these uh, erythematous tonsils with white exudates. So then you're going to take your swab, you're going to swab it, and you're going to send it off to the lab. Well, they don't send it anymore because you can test it. They initially treat the patient, but they still have to send it. Um, that's what they do in micro. And then clinical immunology is the whole antigen antibody response. So those are some of the components of a lab. All right, I love clinical chemistry. Why? Because this is what we order a lot of. Electrolyte me measurements, right? Lights, you ever see, you ever read, and they say, oh, we're gonna order lights, so if you guys have done shadowing or you work in the, uh, order lights, they call it lights. That's why it's called PDL light. Uh, at least I told you something. I'm just kidding. I'm sure you knew it. At least you can relate it to this lecture. So Pedialyte, oh, I mean electrolytes, right? Sodium potassium chloride. We talked about the blood glass measurements. What, where are you going to be drawing that blood? What type of blood draw is it? Is it venous blood, arterial blood, skin? Arterial, right? That's your arterial blood. Urinalysis, right? What do we what 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 do you guys know about urinalysis? Clean catch, midstream, random, twenty-four hour. You got all the huh? Sorry? No, you can say it, I don't care. Yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> right? So those are all the, the those are all the the, the the methods in which or those are the types of samples that you sometimes need to order. We talked about ELISA, right? Enzyme-linked immunosorbent assay. When, when I told you that yesterday, what, we, what did we talk about? HIV. HIV, that should be the first one that usually comes to mind. And we talked about latex agglutination. It was part of the agglutination. And what did we say what that was for? Huh? I'm sorry, I'm talking. Blood typing, that was the heme, right? The hemagglutination. So the same concept, right? And then we talked about the uh, beta HCG, which was the what? The agglutination that is what? Inhib inhibitory, right? Remember, it doesn't, okay, all right. I know, we're rolling along. Okay, <laughs> roly poly. So when we talk about drawing blood, right? Remember when they draw some some blood tests you do on whole blood, some blood tests you do on plasma, some blood tests are done on serum. Very important that 
you know the differences. So basically, they will centrifuge the blood. You guys ever saw a blood? Anybody is a medical uh, lab? No? Anybody centrifuge blood? Right, okay. Okay, so what do you see thing? So what do you have? What happens at the bottom? Usually, right, the red blood cells, and then you have the white buffy coat, which are the white blood cells, and then you have the plasma above it. Okay, so the key with this is that they just, they would um, run, they run the test. Okay, what, somebody not came up? <laughs> Here's your um, 
is basically what the whole blood um, is made of. We know, right? Red blood cells, white blood cells, platelets, and plasma. That when you centrifuge it, right, which is what's showing at the bottom, the plasma is 92% water, right? It also contains blood proteins, which makes up about 7%. So your albumin, your globulins, your fibrinogen is present in the plasma, and then we talked about uh, the non-organic electrolytes. Um, then you have the Buffy code, which is your white blood cells, and then what's happening at the bottom are the red blood cells. So when there, there's a test called ESR, erythrocyte sedimentation rate. Yesterday we talked about um, the C-reactive protein. You're gonna come across a lot of those two particular tests, they usually run together when a, uh, when a patient, you suspect a patient has uh, inflammation or infection, and literally uh, erythrocyte sedimentation rate study actually leaves the blood to stand there for the red blood cells to settle at the bottom, and then they time how long it took, and then they measure how much of, how much of the, the level. So, it's, it sounds really crazy, but it's exactly what it says. Erythrocyte sedimentation rate, they, they measure it. Um, another thing, um, this is a really good thing to keep for when you guys do um, lab medicine with whoever's teaching you guys. It's just to give you an idea of, it's what we talked about before, but it specifically shows you in a nice diagrammatic way. Um, when we talk about plasma, what we, what, what type of, uh, we said proteins and water, and then you have some other solutes. What are the proteins? What are the other solutes, right? And then when we talk about, okay, plate, uh, we talk about the formed elements, your platelets, your leukocytes, your erythrocytes. So just for you guys to go back to your days of um, physiology. Are you guys doing physiology yet? Okay, you guys did any of this? No? You remember it from your... But micro, right? Micro, I think. But this is a really neat diagrammatic representation. Because when you when you start on having to order labs and they tell you, because a lot of times with the clinical medicine, they'll just say, okay, you're going to order uh, CDC and you want to order uh, um, ESR and, uh, and you want to order this and that. You're not really, you're just like, okay, but you don't really know why, why are we ordering it and what is the actual test going to help us with. So it kind of helps you to understand. Nobody ever taught me this at one. I have to say, we had somebody teach us, but all of us were like, oh, okay, <laughs> right? So it's good to understand it because that helps you in your test decision making. Okay, so that's your, that, those are just showing you the mechanics. Um, Serum is plasma clotting factors. The cells must be separated within two hours of being a puncture. Just showing you again what that um, represents. And then these are some of the fluids that we use. Every time we think of testing, we think of only testing blood. You guys want to just go ahead and finish so we leave early? Or you want to take a break? How many more slides do we have? Those, right? The basic, the basic um, 
They, okay, well, if you, anybody says that they want to stop at 6 to go and take a break, let me know. 6 o'clock is the time to say whether you want to break or not. All right, so what are some of the, what are, what are some of the samples that we use? We said it, right? Blood, urine, CSF, amniotic, saliva, synovial fluid, right? When you have a, when you have a joint that's um, erythematous, right? When you have this infusion, you want to make sure it's not septic. Uh, plural fluid, right? What did we talk about with a plural? Where's, what's a plural? What's the plural? Can we see the plural on our x-ray? No. Okay, so what, what did we talk about when you have too much? What, what is the, the condition that has too much fluid in the plural space? Plural infusion. So what they want to know, they're going to want to know, is it a transudate or an exudate? Remember those terms from way back when? Yeah, yeah. Okay, so that's why you want to test it. You want to know the reason why you have this excess plural, this uh, plural fluid. Pericardial fluid as well can be also tested in a lab. And peritoneal fluid. Okay, so these are, these are some of the um, chemistries that could be done. Okay, any questions so far? What are some of your chem clinical chemistry tests? There they are. Basically, they're divided into small and large. And dividing them into small and large just kind of gives you an idea of um, what are some of the smaller ones, metabolites. What are metabolites? The products of metabolism, right? So metabolites, you have therapeutic drugs, toxicology, drugs of abuse. When we think of drugs of abuse, we're talking about it. What? Illegal drugs, right? Cocaine and so forth. And then you have the larger macromolecules because sometimes we need to know about these transport proteins. A lot of rheumatology, they, they, know, they need to know about transport proteins. Enzymes, specific proteins, lipoproteins, diabetic markers. So this, this uh, um, table shows you which, which ones fall under which heading? So, like I said, it gives you an idea of all the all of the chemical analytes that, that can be tested. But I'm not going to read that to you. And then, what about the combination? The combos, right? When you everybody says, "Oh, the electrolyte panel," but what are the specifics in the electrolyte panel? Sodium, potassium chloride and carbon dioxide. And then you're going to learn that carbon dioxide is actually, um, when, when they talk about carbon dioxide, it's actually the bicarbonate ion that's being measured. So when you do uh, acid-base balance, um, like acidosis and alkalosis, they will always say, oh, you're looking at the bicarb ion, even though it's the PCO2, okay? So that, that's one of, the, one of the things to remember. Hepatic, look at the hepatic panel. Albumin, total protein, alkaline phosphatase, alkaline amino uh, transferase, aspartate amino transferase, total bilirubin, direct bilirubin. So when you order, when, when you order a panel, a, a hepatic panel, you're getting everything related to the liver, Right? And what else are you getting it related to? Bilirubin, gallbladder, right? And then so forth and so forth. The, the CMP, a comprehensive 
active metabolic panel instead of ordering electrolytes and ordering um, certain of your liver panels, right? If you do, if you order a CMP, a comprehensive metabolic panel, all of these tests will be run on that one sample. So, and, and the other thing to remember is certain labs, they, they, they vary a little bit in what they have, what their panels, um, what, what labs they draw, they run in their panels, so that's also important to know. That's another thing you're going to learn when you go out into clinicals that um, sometimes you want to order a liver panel and maybe lab course liver panel has something different or miss, is missing something. Because well, the majority of them follow the same rule. Then you have a basic metabolic panel, it's not as comprehensive because it leaves out some of them, some of the differences. And what are the differences? They liver. Right? If you look there, most of the liver enzymes are not in your basic metabolic panel. And that we all know about that lipid profile. Patient has to be MPO and so forth. So the key with panels is order one test and everything is going to be done. So you don't have to wait, right? So you don't have to wait until, oh, I have to, oh, but I should have, I, I, I suspect gallbladder, but I didn't order this. You see, so it, it makes it so much um, easier for you and actually for your patient. Um, when it comes to clinical immunology, we talked about ANA testing. You remember when I talked about, when I said about sensitivity and specificity that the anti-CCP, right, was highly specific for rheumatoid arthritis, but they wouldn't, you wouldn't just order that first, you'd order an anti, um, anti, oh my God, nuclear antibody test. That's your screening test. And from there is when you move on to order the other uh, specific tests. So these are some of the some of the um, the methods that are used. Um, it's just for you to, um, and I think I have I put you through it. But the more the, the most important one that I want you guys to to focus on is this anti-nuclear antibody testing. Why is it? What are we using to screen for autoimmune disorders? And it identifies antibodies that bind to the nucleus within the cells. And the key with anti-nuclear antibody testing is that it's nuclear. And the fact, you see why it says that it binds to the nucleus within a, uh, in a specific pattern? That pattern, those different patterns, are where we, like anti-CCP will have a specific nuclear pattern, right? Rheumatoid, that's for rheumatoid arthritis. Um, Anti-DDSS anti, uh, anti will have a specific speckle or whatever, and that's what they're talking about. So as you go through the different ANE tests, the specificity will be determined, or the actual, um, the actual pattern within the nucleus, they will, the pathologist will send a report as to what the patient has or not. Okay, so that's the important thing. And for testing purposes, the important thing about me giving you these is basically, I don't, I don't want you to tell me, I'm not going to ask you the method, but I can ask you an ANA, right? Which of the following is a screening test? Which of the following can be used um, to, to, to screen for antibody disorders? That's where, that's where um, my questions are going to come with regards to the different methodologies of the different tests. Because you're going to be ordering that, and it's going to get even more detailed when you get into your clinical, into your clinical, um, into clinical medicine. 
So I, I want you guys to say, okay, this is this, okay, autoimmune, I want to start with my AME. That's why it's important. That's why I'm only concerned about those. Oh, I thought somebody said uh, protein electrophoresis. Okay, so this is protein, blood, urine, or cerebral spinal fluid. We talked about that. What does it use? Charge, right? To separate the protein. So that's protein um, electrophoresis. And then you have those that are used to identify monoclonal immunoglobulins. Uh, not to concern um, in terms of um, what, what do you need to know about this? It's the heavy chain and light chain what? monoclonal immunoglobulins. What are immunoglobulins? Proteins, right? Anybody can give me an example? of a heavy chain or a light chain, you can Google it. There they are, you don't even need to Google it. That's your IgG, IgM, IgA. Those are your immunoglobulins, okay? So you should associate um, monoclonal immunoglobulins to the IgG. So this is the test that you would use to determine which, um, which of these immunoglobulins, the IgGs, IgA and so forth. You guys want a break? No. No? Okay. Flow cytometry. So when you see cyto, what are you measuring? Cells, right? So basically you're separating the cells. What are we, sep what are we using it for? Cell type and to access cell surface markers. So this, this is when you, whenever you see the words, the, that's flow cytometry. That's basically what you're doing. You're just Taking it's like putting them through a strainer, right? So, well, yeah, I call it a strainer. What do you guys call it? A cold, cold colander. Colander. Yeah, my British term is a strainer. Okay, um, so flow cytometry, types of cell types and um, cell surface markers. Um, this is a very modern. Um, more, more, well, modern meaning five, five, maybe five to ten years ago. But this is what they use for um, antibody antigen complexes as well. Okay, it's called nephilometry, and it actually quantitates. So what, what, why is, why is there so many tests? Like immunology will have all these different tests. The key is some of them, some tests uh, will quantify, meaning give you the amount. Some tests will just qualify. Do I have it or do I not? So there's a difference. Some will do both. They qualify and they quantify. Yes, this is present and this is how much is present. So that's why sometimes not just one test will work. Okay, so each one has a different purpose. It's just like starting off with an x-ray, right, for a fracture. But if the fracture is a complex fracture, you want to use CT. It's the same concept. Some of them... Give you a certain amount of information, some of them you need to give you even more additional information. Okay, um, I'm not gonna I'm gonna skip uh, cryoglobulin analysis because those are highly specific. You see, um, when it says the expense is moderate, moderate or expensive, you're gonna find that they're not used too much. Okay, any questions there? So microbiology, no, not not I don't want that part of the lab. Infectious diseases, right? Anything for micro. When, when you think of micro, this is all of the indications that can be done. I'm not going to read them out to you. When you guys are going to read it, though, right? When you think of micro, 
sometimes they, you know, you know, culture. But you think of cultures, right? You think of the fact is that this patient, you did this throat swab on the patient, and you want to know what what is the organism. You have an idea, right? What is the offending agent? But you need to make sure. So something like um, uh, pharyngitis, you'll do the throat swab, you'll send it to the lab, and you'll treat. Because you know clinically and uh, from the physical exam that this is most likely the organism. But that is why you tell the patient if you don't, if, if you don't get a response, in two to three days, it hasn't changed, come back. Because in that time, they would have done, the culture results would have come back. Because what they're going to do is they have to grow, right? Because one little, one swab may, may not give you enough of, a, of the colony to, to give you a value when you're testing it. So when you're swabbing, you're going to find you're going to swab from one and you're going to swab in the other. You're going to twirl the swab to make sure that you get distribution. So you're not just going to do, um, especially if it's bilateral, you need to make sure that you have enough of it and then that's why they have to grow it in a culture. So what is culture and sensitivity? Oh, I forgot to talk about Gramsci, but I'll go back. What is culture and, okay, what's Gramsci for microbiology? Just tell me what type of bacteria you have by staining it, okay? That's basically what gram stain is. Um, uh -huh. Oh, sorry, did I jump too fast? Okay. So it's just telling you what type of, um, whether you have which bacteria are present. When we talk about culture um, and sensitivity, what is the sensitivity part of it? The resistance, right? So the thing is when you, when you have an infectious disease, um, and you wanna you wanna determine what the organism is. You 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 will also want to determine if what you're planning to treat your patient with, or which treatment, if that particular antibiotic will work. So that's where the culture and sensitivity comes into play. Urine, right? Sometimes when we do a urinalysis, right? If you're gonna order urinalysis for culture and sensitivity, it has to be clean catch. Right, midstream in a sterile container because you don't want contamination. Right, that's why the first time you pay your your um, your what do you call that thing? Your what do you tell the patient? Instructions. Sorry. So instructions to the patient will be they got to clean right, and then you, you they urinate. They don't take the first uh, flow of urine and they catch it midstream because you want to make sure that you don't have that contamination. And basically what it does, what they do with it is that they grow, you, they, they do two, two um, methods. They can use the, the liquid method or the broccoli method where they have discs with the antibiotic, with the, with the liquid, right, where they use the dilution method. It's just so the key is that you want to look for the minimum inhibitory drug concentration. They're looking to see does this antibiotic, by looking at the ring, does this antibiotic really um, cause the destruction of what the organism, or is the organism resistant to it? And if the organism is resistant to it, you're not going to use that antibiotic. And usually when those results come back, they tell you all of them, they say, it'll say resistant, resistant, resistant because they use a number of discs, discs that are in um, some different solutions of antibiotics. So it's pretty, pretty interesting. You're going to see that a lot. 
Um, immunofluorescence is basically for antigen detection, and all they do is that they give it a fluorescent dye, and they look under a specific uh, microscope, and they look to see if it gives off light, right, if it fluoresces. So this is for specific antigens. Very, um, very moderate in price and um, very manual. So usually, you know, our labs are very automated. Some of these are done in smaller labs. You're going to find that some of your, um, some of the tests that you, you order, you may have to send it outside, right? To California or to a different state to have it processed. How many more slides do I have? Oh my God, what the hell? You sure you want a little break? Oh, I didn't realize I had so many of these things. Okay, sorry. That's what I'm skipping through. Okay, hematology. We're counting many things, right? Counting the blood cells in an automated um, system to you to find out your white blood cell differential. So that's your CBC. CBC with differentials, right? When you order CBC with differentials, it's telling you all the different the different types, the white, red, your white blood cells, your red blood cells, and your platelets, but it's also going to break down, right? The white blood cells into your different components, your cinephils, basophils. So that's what it means by differential. Um, I didn't, even though sickle cell screening assay is also a method in hematology, hemoglobin analysis, and ESR. So I'm going to skip through the ones that... Um, about counting white blood cells automated basically it's just telling you how they count. You want to make sure you know all the different white blood cells. Sickle cell screening assays, um, we're going to skip through that because that's a little too specific. Yes? No, you will have to say CBC with, dif with dif differential. And when do you want that? So when, when you're infection. Inflammation, yeah. When you suspect that the well, white blood cells usually rise, and you want to know which one of them is why is it rising? Is it because is it because of an allergic reaction? Is it because of a, a, a infection? Is it because of inflammation? So you need to be specific. Okay. So if a patient comes in TR and you're not concerned about infection or inflammation, but you need to know a general idea of what's going on, you're just going to order a CBC. Well, that's a good question. Um, sickle cell screening, we're going to skip over. I should have removed that slide. Hem um, hemoglobin analysis. What are, we, what are we trying to figure out? You're trying to figure out the, to identify the hemoglobin present in the patient's red blood cells. So, you know, you talk about hemoglobin S, hemoglobin C. So this is even more specific. It's not just you're finding out the hemoglobin count, but you're finding out which different types of hemoglobin. So you guys will do that in hematology. This is more specific for hematology. Um, ESR and C-reactive protein, I had mentioned that before, right? Anytime you have inflammation, um, more inflammation than infection. Um, remember I showed you about the fact that you do, you spin the blood down and then you just measure, right? Oh, the ESR you measure with C-reactive um, protein. They use a more sophisticated method. The ESR is the one that measures how long it takes for the erythrocytes to, um, to actually settle. Oh gosh, coagulation. Oh, you, you guys feel it on me? Oh, it's only five after six. Okay. Can you delete all of this from my little uh, 
avoided the comments. Coagulation, <laughs> yeah. Next thing you know, Professor Rinas, he says he's going to look at the phenomenon. He's going to listen to it in case he's saying, oh, tempo slides. All right. Methods and coagulation. PT and PTT. Mixing PT and PTT studies, coagulation factors, uh, von Willebrand factors, that's a bleeding disorder, right? Um, platelet aggregation, once again, still all part of the, the whole, um, hemo the whole of, uh, hematology oncology. So if you guys are going into hematology oncology, you're going to be ordering a lot of these um, tests. With regards to PT and PTT, what, what, look at the tube. What tube do we use? The blue, right? The blue top. You notice, you notice it's a specific top, right? So the key is that it has an anticoagulant in the tube. Remember when we talked about the different tubes? I'm going to see if any of them talk specifically about it. You see the purple, right? They, 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 it's really neat because they tell you which tubes you have, you're using to draw. But the thing with the coagulation test is that you want to make sure that you do have an anticoagulant in the test because have you guys ever drawn blood and left it there? I mean, not even seconds in it, it's just a whole jelly lump. Well, you can't run a test on that because you obviously have to centrifuge it, right? So the thing with this is that you want to make, it's the blue top, and basically, they, they remove the plasma, and then they add an activator. So depending on which one, right, they're looking for, um, they, they add like PTT, they add the partial thromboplastin and calcium for PT, just the thromboplastin. So they add, they add a, a, um, an actual, um, what do you call it, additive, an activator, and then they, they run the labs and they tell you the time, the time that it takes to clot. That's why it's called the PTT, right? It's the clotting time. And um, each, each one has its normal range. Um, and then they talk about mixing studies, and I'm not going to go through those mixing studies, but you guys should read them, especially, so, you know, it's still there the first time you hear it. Coagulation factor assays. These are patients who do what? Why would you want to run a coagulation factor assay? quantifying, right, the specific amount of a, the amount of a specific coagulation factor. Do you remember from physiology the cascade, the clotted cascade? That's where all of these come into play. So correlated to your physiology, when we talk about coagulation factors, we're talking about every one of those that, that you, you have in that whole clotting cascade. And that's why it's heme hematology deals with those. So if you want to go back to your, your factors, right? Factor 2, factor 5, factor 7, factor 10, right? And then factor 8, factor... So the, the bottom of it tells you which factors. So now you're, before you're checking the timing and now you are looking for the amount of each of the actual factors. So this is a little more specific than the... PT and PTT, right? Because now you're specifically looking for different factors in the cascade, in the coagulation cascade. Platelet aggregation, when you aggregate, what do you do? 
Yeah, the ability of them to come together is not important in the clotting factor. So that's what platelet aggregation does really. It just tells you the percentage of the response to other platelets and how they take to the ability for them to aggregate. Very manual. Look at the look at the, the expense. It's high. Anything that's very manual is going to cost more, right? What is the most costly thing about um, when you go to service your power? Is it the oil? No, it's the fifty something dollars they charge you. They, they say the mechanic per hour that the mechanic is doing to uh, right him to change the oil. So it's the same concept. The more manual the labor, oh my God, the more manual the the test, the more expensive it will be. Tell me, this is the last one. Yes. Oh, you really gotta. <laughs> you really gotta chop it up. There's not too much to chop. Okay, so tomorrow is Thursday. Oh, um, afternoon. I'm gonna. I have to go home and put together that quiz. Right? Why are you looking so sharp? If you guys want to take it on the weekend, it's fine with me. Yes? It's up to you guys. You guys want it around four in the afternoon, five? 